Please open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We'll be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 11. So John chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn there, please join me in prayers. We ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the joy of gathering together and worshiping You. We pray now that as we come and hear Your Word read and hear Your Word preached, that You would feed us bountifully from Your Word, that it might be a means of grace to change our heart. Lord, add to Your Spirit the blessing of Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered, you over, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. May God bless the reading of his holy word and let his church say amen. Last year, uh, in light of the Queen of England's death, I read a story that maybe some of you had read that was communicated by one of Her Majesty's bodyguards. And he recounted a time with the Queen of England that they were in Scotland and at Balmoral Castle, walking the grounds, and the Queen and... Mr. Griffin, came across two American tourists who were walking the grounds, and they began to interact with the queen, and it was her custom to greet people out as she was out and about. But it became very clear that they did not know with whom they were interacting as they began to share with them all the beautiful places that they had visited in her kingdom. Where do you live, they asked the queen. Well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just over on the other side of the hills. 
The tourist replied, How long have you been coming up here? To which she answered, Oh, about 80 years. 80 years? Have you ever met the Queen of England? The Queen answered, Well, I haven't, but Griffin here, he meets with her regularly. The hiker then turned to Griffin and said, You've met the Queen, what's she like? And he answered, and he knew the Queen well enough that he could do this. He said, Oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. The Americans then proceeded to hand, hand their camera to the queen and ask her to take a picture with them and the man who gets to meet the queen regularly. <laughs> and then they exchanged hands with the camera and they took a picture with the queen and they departed and said their goodbyes. The queen then turned to Griffin and said to him, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when those photographs are developed and they show them to their friends in America. Hopefully someone tells him who I am. In our passage this morning, there is the case of mistaken identity. The Jews, the religious leaders, Pilate, the crowds, they all have before them in their custody the king of England, the king of the earth, the king of kings, and the lord of lords, the king of the Jews. They have him in their custody and they do not realize that he really is the king of the Jews as they are accusing him. That really is who he is. And they're going to put the king of the Jews to death. Rather than recognizing Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords and falling on their knees and paying homage to him as they should have, they treat him with scorn and contempt. They do all this because they don't truly know who Jesus is. They don't really know what kind of a king He is. There's a lot of scorn and contempt for Jesus in our culture today, isn't there? It comes out of a heart of not truly knowing the kind of king that Jesus is. For if we truly saw Him as He truly is, for we know His glory is veiled, He's a glorious king, if His glory were unveiled, and one day it will be, we know that every knee would fall down and pay homage to Jesus and every tongue would confess that He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to tell you this morning, talk to you this morning from this passage about the kind of King that Jesus is. He's a glorious King. What kind of King is Jesus? First, I want you to see in this passage that Jesus is a mocked king. Jesus is a mocked king. Do you see the mock coronation that takes place in these verses? Pilate takes Jesus and has him flogged. The Romans, it's reported the Romans had three types of 
physical punishments that they would do, three types of scourgings or floggings, you might say. And as we uh, reconcile John's gospel with the other gospel accounts, it appears here uh, from its context that what Jesus is receiving at this point is the less severe of the Roman floggings. It was customary for the Romans to physically punish someone and then give that person a warning, making an example of that person, discouraging them from any uh, further uh, issues. And of course, they had other floggings, including a third kind of flogging that was the most severe flogging that you often hear about with the whips, the leather whips, that they used bone fragments and glass shards and rock shards that they would uh, uh, tie to the end, adhere to the end of those whips. And our Lord and Savior, after He's condemned to die, but before His crucifixion, is most certainly flogged within an inch of His life. That's not what is taking place here, at least not what we think. We think what is happening here, as we'll see in a moment, Pilate intends to release Jesus. He's trying to make an example of Jesus, and he's doing so with the charge that has come from the Jews that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so Pilate wants to make an example of Jesus and shame him and mock him. And so he has Jesus flogged. The soldiers, we read in verse 2, they take a crown, they take thorns, and they twist them together and place that upon Jesus' head as a crown for him. And they find a purple robe and they array him in a purple robe, verse 2 tells us. And then they go through the motions of a mock coronation in verse 3 where apparently the soldiers are lining up one by one and they are coming and paying false homage to Jesus. Look at what they say in verse 3. Hail, King of the Jews. And then they would strike Him with their hands. All intended to shame Jesus with this charge that He is the King of the Jews. Pilate intends to release Him. We see here in verse 4 that Pilate goes out to the Jews and he says to them, Hey, listen, I'm about to bring this person out that you have brought to me. I'm about to bring Jesus out to you. You've delivered him over to me. I've examined him. I have flogged him. We have mocked him. And I just want you to know, look at what Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Verse 4 is what Pilate says. I find no guilt in him. The Jews were not able to carry out legally capital punishment. They had to have the judgment of the Roman Empire and the Romans were required under Roman law to carry out that execution. They want to crucify Jesus and so they want to do that legally rather than making Jesus a martyr like they did Stephen where they took the law into their own hands and stoned him to death. They want all this to be legal in the eyes of the public and so they bring Jesus before Pilate Pilate mocks him. They've told Pilate he's the king of the Jews, or he claims to be the king of the Jews. It's a political stunt that the Jews have, intended to evoke a visceral reaction from the Romans who were uh, paranoid for power, 
greedy for power, and any sort of uprising would be met with the Roman sword. And so this charge from the Jews is intended to evoke a swift, harsh response. And ironically, the Jews aren't getting the response they want from the Roman governor. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And so he brings Jesus out to him, just like you would imagine at a coronation where a newly crowned uh, king or queen is arrayed in crown and scepter and hand and marvelous, glorious robes with, with all their court behind them and is brought out before the kingdom. And everyone in the kingdom applauds and cheers and pays homage to the new king or queen. Pilate is staging a mock coronation in every way, including bringing Jesus, verse 5, out to the Jews wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And he presents Jesus to them. Behold the man, he says. Is this the king that you expected? Does he look like a king? Is he dressed like a king? Does he carry himself like a king? Jesus, no doubt, bruised and bloodied from the flogging, from the abuse, from the crown of thorns, from the punishment he had endured, though he had no guilt. Why would Jesus allow himself to be mocked like this? Why didn't Jesus demand their fealty? Why not just display just a, just a sliver of his glory just for a split second and strike fear in the heart of Pilate and the hearts of the Jews? Why not just for a moment just, just display an ounce of his glory and put to death all his accusers, all his abusers, and, and teach everyone a lesson what happens when you mess with the king of the universe? Why is Jesus a mocked king? There once was a time when no one was mocked. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, there was no mocking in the Garden of Eden, God's good creation. Adam and Eve, created in God's image, they enjoyed fellowship with one another without shame, the Bible says. They enjoyed fellowship with God, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But sin brought shame, didn't it? Adam and Eve realized that they were unclothed and they were ashamed and they hid themselves trying to cover their shame, trying to cover and hide their shame, crafting together clothes for themselves. And when the Lord comes into the garden after they have sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, what do, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide themselves from God. They're ashamed to see God. This is what sin does. Sin brings shame, and it made a mockery 
of God's good creation. It made a mockery of God's design where Adam and Eve were created in God's image to have dominion over God's good creation. And rather than exercising dominion over God's good creation, they allow a created being to have dominion over them. And so the whole order falls under a curse. Adam and Eve's relationship with each other falls under a curse. Eve, as the mother of all the living, her work as a mother falls under a curse. And Adam's work as God's vice regent on earth, that falls under a curse too, doesn't it? Adam would continue on in his work of plowing the fields and working the ground, but something else would come along with the produce of the land. And what was it? It was thorns and thistles. Genesis 3 tells us. God cursed the land, His good land that He had created because sin had polluted it and now the thorns would be a sign of sin's curse on humanity. I think you know what I'm getting to, don't you? Jesus here, isn't it interesting that Jesus is mocked and He is mocked by taking upon the place where he should have a marvelous, glorious crown. He takes upon himself the sign of sin's curse. Why does Jesus do that? Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that, Paul? How did Jesus redeem us from the curse of the law? What does Paul say in Galatians 3? He became a curse for us. Here's what we're reading in John chapter 19. Christ becomes a curse for us. He is innocent and He is judged guilty. He committed no crime and He is going to be put to death. He never fell into sin, not for a single moment, and He bears upon His brow the sign of sin's curse. Why does He do that? Why does Jesus allow Himself to be a mocked king? The answer is found in Galatians 3. He's mocked to redeem us from the curse. That's why here at this moment in John 19, Jesus continues to veil His glory. That's why in John 19, He allows His accusers to abuse Him and to beat Him and to mock Him and to shame Him. He, he does so. He allows all of that to happen because He knows by becoming a curse for us, He redeems us. Dear Christian, if you've been redeemed by Christ, why do you try to earn your redemption? You can't earn it, can you? The price has already been paid. The redemption has already been paid. There's no penance that you can pay for the forgiveness of sins or redemption. There's no good deed that you can do to earn God's love or forgiveness Dear one, you might as well just accept God's love for you in Christ. 
For our Lord Jesus Christ took upon Himself the full punishment of sin that you and I rightly deserved. We're guilty. He's innocent. We are cursed because of sin. He is glorified because He's the eternal King of the universe. And here He comes, adding to Himself a body, being mocked by the very people He'd been sent to rule and reign over. And He does so that He might become a curse, that He might redeem us. Dear Christian, Jesus is a glorious King. Even in the moment when he's mocked, his glory is still displayed because in being mocked, he redeems us from sin. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a mocked king. And I want you to see here, number two, Jesus is a rejected king. Look with me at verse 6. As the crowds, as the mob sees Jesus, here they are all assembled Together, the chief priests and the Jews, look at what they say in verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Pilate is absolutely fed up with, with all of this. It's interesting we read, I believe it's in Matthew, one of the other Gospel accounts, I think it's Matthew that we read that Mrs. Pilate, we don't know her name. We'll call her Mrs. Pilate. It's like Noah's wife. We always call her Mrs. Noah. We don't know her name. Mrs. Pilate sends word to her husband and she says, have nothing to do with this man because I've been having some strange dreams and great affliction on account of him. Pilate is a pagan, but he's very superstitious. He hears the cries to crucify him, and Pilate, he is so upset with this, he wants to release Jesus, and he tells them what? Take him yourselves and crucify him. Here again, we see emphasized for us, I find no guilt in him. If you find him so guilty and you want this man dead, you take him into your own hands and you crucify him if you want him put to death so much. Knowing full well they cannot do that legally. He's exacerbated with them. He wants to keep the peace. Pilate wants to appease the Jews and he wants to set Jesus free. Even if he has to beat Jesus and scourge him and flog him and put him to open shame, he'll do it just to try and keep the peace, especially at the Passover season. The Jews, however, will have none of it. Look at verse 7. They answer, Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now their charge is changing. Before, the charge against Jesus is a political one. Jesus is the King of the Jews. Now they are charging Jesus with blasphemy. We have a law. Oh, all of a sudden, now you want to appeal to law and order. We have a law. And Jesus has blasphemed. He's made Himself to be the Son of God. And according to Leviticus 24.16, anyone who blasphemes needs to be put to death. And so, we have been given the right, they're arguing, even though we are under Roman occupation, we still get to govern ourselves 
to a degree, in accordance with our own laws. And so here Pilate is put in this position. If he sets Jesus free, the Jews will likely revolt against him, reporting him to his Roman superiors who will come down and crush him and remove him from his position of authority just as they had done time and time again to other governors. But, if he puts Jesus to death, he's putting to death a man he has already confessed to be innocent. And now he is hearing the charge that he is, I can't help but to think this is the way Pilate heard it, a son of the gods. He's divine? Wait a minute, he's divine? So this man in my custody, the one that my wife has had these dreams about, he claims to be the Son of God? And I'm about to put to death a divine man? Isn't that interesting, the title that's given to Jesus here? There's two popular titles. Jesus has a lot of titles. But two of the most popular titles of Jesus are Son of Man and Son of God. They refer to aspects of Jesus' deity and his humanity, except they're reversed. That's how you need to remember them. Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days, in Daniel's vision, he sees God the Father as the Ancient of Days. He's seated on his throne. He rules and reigns over all the nations. And there, then there is one who comes before his throne in Daniel's vision. He has the appearance of what? The Son of Man, Daniel says. There's something about this divine person that is human-like, has human characteristics in his glorious state. And it is to this Son of Man that all dominion over all nations and all kingdoms are given into his hand. And so when Son of Man is used as a description of Jesus, it is referring to his what? His deity. When Son of God is used, it is referring to His humanity. But it's doing so in an honorific way. Being a Son of God was a title of being in a special covenantal relationship with God in the line of the Holy Seed. When you read Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus is recorded there. And Jesus' genealogy is traced back through a royal line. It is traced back through King David. It's traced back through Father Abraham, the patriarch. And it's traced back to whom? The first man, Adam. And do you know what Luke calls Adam in Luke chapter 3? Who is Luke the son of? It's not a trick question, by the way. Who is Luke the son or who is Adam the son of? He's the son of God. And that's not the first time that that title has been used before. 
in God's covenant with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with King David that his throne will endure forever and that one of David's sons will sit on King David's throne and that the relationship between that king and God will be of special significance that God will be to that king like a father and that king will be like a son. And so they'll have a special, enjoy a special covenantal relationship between the two of them as the king is the son of God. Psalm chapter 2 Verses 7 through 8, we read about this Davidic king where the nations are commanded about this this son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you, Psalm chapter 2 says. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So here is the son of God. And to him is given all dominion, authority, and power. And the nations are then commanded in Psalm 2 verse 11 to do what? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. And yet it's from this royal line, the house of David, that salvation comes. You go back and you read Zechariah chapter 12. You'll find the promise that the Lord will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And then he begins to go on and account this about the Davidic son. Listen to what he says. So that when they look on him, no, Zechariah says, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Wait a minute. Is this a son of King David or is this a divine person? And the answer is, mm mm-hmm. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Isn't that awesome? You see the thread here that's been woven for us from the beginning of Genesis? The promise connected from son to son to son. All the hopes and dreams are waiting that there will come a Son of God who will come and redeem humanity from their sin. And He'll do so by being pierced. He will open a fountain, Zacharias says. And He will cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What kind of a king is Jesus? Jesus is a mocked king. He's mocked to redeem us from the curse. Jesus also is a rejected king. And He is a rejected king that He might cleanse us from sin. If you read the story, the book, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, yes, I'll work Lewis into my sermons once or twice a year. John, this is for you. All right? In the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we read, we read about a little boy. His name is Eustace. Eustace is a pill in the story. He's not very pleasant to be around. He's in constant conflict with his companions. And eventually, Eustace, 
he runs off by himself and he finds a dragon horde. And what does Eustace do when he finds this dragon horde? He lays down and he goes to sleep. And while Eustace is asleep, do you know what happens to him? He turns into a dragon. And what was inside his heart becomes outwardly displayed in his physical characteristics. He's a horrible, terrible sight to behold. Eventually, Eustace, in the form of a dragon, he meets the lion, Aslan. And he needs help from Aslan. But the only way he can receive help from Aslan is if something terrible happens to him, something that terrifies him to death. The lion, with his horrible, terrifying claws, must tear the dragon scales from Eustace's flesh. He's unable to change himself. No matter how hard he tries to pull the scales off of his body, he has to submit himself and surrender himself to another. What a picture of God's grace in our lives. You see, we can try and clean ourselves up. We can try to change our hearts. We can try to earn God's grace and try to earn God's favor. We can try to do good and work harder and just go through this endless cycle time after time after time of trying and failing to be a better person, a better Christian, a better churchgoer, a better mom, a better dad, a better wife, a better husband, a better child, a better student, and around and around on the hamster wheel we go. Only Jesus can change your heart. And He can change your heart because He was a rejected King and He was rejected to cleanse us from, his, from our sin. That's His work. That's the kind of King He is. He's a glorious King. He's mocked, but for our redemption. He's rejected, but for our cleansing. And lastly, I want you to see in this passage that Jesus, He's an exalted King. He might be rejected now. He might be mocked now. But he is going to be exalted. Look at his interaction with Pilate. Pilate pulls him inside. Now he really wants to know, who is this Jesus? He's afraid. We read in verse 8. Where are you from? He wants to know. Pilate asks him, where are you from? Tell me about yourself. And what does Jesus do? Now Pilate is truly interested in learning more about Jesus. And what does Jesus do? His lips are sealed. He answers Pilate, nothing. How in the world at this point could Pilate possibly comprehend the magnitude of the kind of king that Jesus is? Pilate is incensed by this. And we read in verse 10, you will, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? 
What's he saying to Jesus? If you're going to defend yourself, if you're going to provide an adequate explanation for yourself, now's the time to do it. Because Jesus, I'm the man who has authority over you to either release you or crucify you. So choose your next words carefully. And what does Jesus say to him? Verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. There's another sovereign, Pilate, and it's not the king in Rome. It's not you. You're not really in charge. There is another. He rules and reigns over all the universe and over all the kingdoms of the earth, and you are just a, just a pawn in his work of redemption. You bear some guilt for your role in this, and so do the Jews, Jesus says. But all of this is working for God's greater glory who is absolutely in control over all of these events. All of these things are happening for a higher purpose. We read about it in Acts chapter 2 when Peter tells the Jews in his sermon, this Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says, all this was in God's perfect will for Jesus to be delivered up, for Jesus to be put to death, for Jesus to be crucified. All of this was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. And then, what does he say? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You're responsible, Peter says. It was God's purpose for him to be crucified and you put him to death. And they are cut to the heart, aren't they? And they say, what must we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. But all of this is part of God's work. What's God doing? Peter begins to explain to them that because of his work, that God has exalted him at his right hand and there Seated at the right hand of God the Father, He is there while God is making all His enemies His footstool. Jesus is a glorious King. Jesus is an exalted King. Even now, where He rules and reigns at the Father's right hand, and He is not the King that we deserve. But He is the King that we absolutely need. He's the King we must have. Because he is the only king who's conquered death, hell, and the grave. I wonder this morning if you see Jesus as he truly is. Do you have a case of mistaken identity about Jesus? Do you revere him as you ought? Do you worship him as you ought? Do you pay homage to him as you ought? Or are you loose with the way that you speak about Jesus? Are you putting off for another day the allegiance and the homage that you rightly owe Him because you don't have a proper view of Him. Maybe this morning you've never bent the knee to King Jesus. He doesn't invite you to bend the knee to Him. He commands you to bend the knee to Him. For He is already a King. And he calls upon men and women everywhere 
to repent of their sins and to fall upon His mercy and His grace. If you've never done that before, you need to do that this morning. Because one day this glorious King will return. And every eye will see Him and every eye will behold Him. And then every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's go to Him in prayer.